James 3, verses 13 through 18. Hear the word of God. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for this word, and it is our joy to submit to it. I pray that you would anoint my lips and enable me to faithfully uh, develop the teaching here and for us each one to have that word quickened to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. Most Americans have taken an IQ test at some point in their lives, and there are many Americans, especially in the business world, who have taken an EQ test. Uh, EQ measures the emotional quotient. But how many here have taken, taken the WQ test? Okay, well, James has a WQ test that uh, measures the wisdom quotient. And the reason we need a test is because a lot of what passes for wisdom is really not wisdom in God's eyes. And uh, I think it's helpful if we understand why it's important. Um, uh, People only began really studying and developing the emotional quotient uh, side of things when they began to analyze and realize that businessmen and teachers and people in other departments uh, it seems that their EQ level, their EQ, uh, uh, emotional quotient, was far more significant in their success than their IQ was. And so they began these fascinating studies that have been done from youth all the way up to the top. Now, I don't care whether you buy into IQ or EQ this morning, but I hope you buy into the WQ because James says it really does make a difference in your success, uh, what your wisdom quotient is. If you look at the last verse... It says, now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So none of the church wars that uh, go on in chapter 4, if you've got a high WQ. On the other hand, if you've got a low WQ, verse 16 says, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Every evil thing, any, anything evil is possible when you've got a low WQ. That means there's some pretty high stakes that are involved here. It's a pretty significant thing that we ought to want to study. Now, the problem is a lot of people confuse IQ with, e, uh, with WQ, okay? IQ and WQ. Uh, there was a large survey that was done a number of years ago that maybe some of you um, uh, read, and it was finding out who Americans thought was the most intelligent person uh, in America. <clears throat> and uh, there were all kinds of candidates that were out there, and the results uh, said that Carl Sagan was the winner. And he's dead now, uh, but the people really were impressed with his IQ, and there's no question about it, he did have a high IQ. But God thinks that intelligence is way overrated. Uh, God says that Carl Sagan really was a fool because it says the fool has said in his heart there is no God, and over and over again he thought that and said and publicly said there is no God. 
dogmatically said that that was the case. So I think we need to keep clearly in our minds the distinction between IQ and WQ. They are quite different, and we're going to be spelling out uh, some of those uh, differences. Uh, uh, according to the scripture, there are people who have a very, uh, can have a very low Q, uh, very low IQ, and yet have a very high wisdom quotient. On the other hand, there are uh, people who have a very high IQ, and they would register in God's books a zero on the wisdom quotient. And it's not just atheists. In fact, James is not even talking to unbelievers. He's talking to people in the church. Uh, he's talking to people who, you know, knew a lot and said a lot and had enough experience that at least some people thought that uh, they had wisdom. <coughs> but in reality, we're showing immaturity and foolishness and disqualification for teaching. And I've met uh, Reformed teachers who I'm uncomfortable being around because they've got a chip on their shoulder and it seems they cannot enjoy a conversation with you unless that conversation involves ripping somebody to shreds theologically. And you wonder if you're going to be the next one that's going to be skewered or diced to pieces with their theological sort. They don't have the peaceableness and the gentleness and the willingness to yield and the mercy and the other things that James says always accompany God's wisdom. In fact, uh, probably the worst part, according to James here, is that they have a wisdom without works. Just as we can have faith without works and words without works, here he's saying there is a wisdom without works. And let me just give you an example. They can tell you everything that's wrong about some Arminian's methodology of evangelism, but they will not involve themselves in evangelism at all. They can tell you everything is wrong theologically with the pro-life movement, but are they involved in trying to affect our society? No, they're not. And so they've got a wisdom without works. And we're going to be seeing that as far as James is concerned, it's a useless wisdom. What kind of wisdom do we have? Uh, chapters 2 and 3 describe that faith without works is useless. Words without works is useless. Now, wisdom without works is useless. You get the impression he thinks works are important? <laughs> All the way through this book, he keeps saying, show me, show me, show me. I want to see your works. Where is the evidence of God's grace in your lives? Now, these people obviously had enough knowledge that a number of the people wanted to be teachers. That's the implication of verse 1. And James pops their bubble. He says that they were disqualified for teaching by their immaturity. And their response might be, but, but, but you said we're supposed to be showing our faith with our works. This is my works. This is my gifting, you know, is teaching. And so I'm trying to demonstrate my faith by my works. And what James did is he opened up their understanding for what an incredibly dangerous tool the tongue is in the mouth of an immature person. Now, in the process, in verses 2 and 3, he also says it's an incredibly and wonderfully powerful tool that the righteous, the mature person, can use to tame his body, to, to uh, harness his body. We explained how all of that worked, but he was emphasizing that it's dangerous because he was trying to talk these people out of becoming teachers. Uh, until they had learned some maturity in, in their lives. And um, he pointed out that we waste and we destroy other people's lives in the way in which we debate theology. We gossip under the guise of taking prayer requests. We slander brothers in the name of theological integrity. Uh, our tongues become weapons to tear down brothers and destroy brothers rather than to build up brothers and to reconstruct them. And we saw in verses 13 through uh, uh, 18, well, actually, all the way through, James is not just rebuking them, he's also giving them the solution. 
And uh, we saw all kinds of practical steps that he gave for conquering the tongue. Now, in ourselves, we cannot conquer the tongue. He makes that very clear there. No man can tame the tongue. But praise the Lord, we're not in ourselves, are we? We're in Christ Jesus. And so he gives us all kinds of ways that we can, by God's grace, do all things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, is what uh, Paul is what Paul says. And so we looked at 12 practical steps for changing our speech in this chapter, and then we quickly looked at another three in chapter 4. Now backing up, in in verses 13 through uh, 18 of chapter 3, we saw how this directly relates to the problem of speech. If you do not conquer the inward motivations that lead to the bad speech, you're never going to be able to lick that speech problem. And so if you've got bitterness in your heart, it is guaranteed it's going to come out in your speech at some point, no matter how hard you try not to let that bitterness come out. If you've got envy that he talks about there in your heart, it will manifest itself. You're trying and trying not to say something, and then you kick yourself. Out it came, okay? It's because of those motivations. They have not been mortified. They have not been crucified on the inside. And so we saw it's not enough to abstain from speech and just keep your mouth shut. Just like it's not enough to abstain from food to conquer gluttony or abstain from alcohol to conquer drunkenness, abstinence is not the solution, nor is adding all kinds of spiritual speech, you know, and becoming a teacher. He says that's not the solution. The solution is to go to the heart of the issue, which is the issue of the heart, and, and conquer those, uh, those motivations. And so we've already dealt with verses 13 through 18 a little bit, but... Uh, the way he builds his topics, it's like really hard to make breaks because they're all kind of connected. He brings up a new topic, but somehow that topic relates to what he was talking about before. So we're going to have to keep, you know, coming back and overlapping a little bit. Now in verse 13, and this is Roman numeral one in your outline, James addresses the same people and he pops another bubble that they have been blowing up in their pride. Uh, <clears throat> these uh, people who aspired to be teachers did so because they were intelligent and they had a good grasp of theology. I think that's obvious in the book. But James gives them a challenge. In verse 13, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? And there's a bunch of hands go up in the congregation. And he goes on and he says, Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness, not in the pride, but in the meekness of wisdom. And I suppose some of the hands, at least, you know, came down uh, because what they were thinking about is a little bit different than what James uh, was thinking about at that uh, point. The wisdom from above is very much interested in conduct and it's very much interested in showing. God says you cannot hide it. If I've given that wisdom, it is going to burn within you. You are going to demonstrate it in some way. And so that word show is a, is a very key word. Whenever James does that word show, brings it up, he's saying, hey guys, the proof of the pudding is in changed lives and I want to find out how your life has been changed by this wisdom that God has given to you. True biblical wisdom is always going to manifest itself in a different way uh, than the world's wisdom. Now, earlier he had said, show or demonstrate your faith with action, show or demonstrate your teaching with action, now it's show or demonstrate your wisdom. And the Hebrew model, and this passage is clearly rooted in the Hebrew Old Testament, the Hebrew model is quite different than the Greek model on wisdom. Um, The Hebrew model is involved in real life living, getting your fingers dirty, involvement in the lives of other people. 
whereas the Greek uh, model was purely intellectual. In fact, sometimes it had absolutely no relevance to life. It was just a mental puzzle that you went through. You read some of the Greek philosophers, and it gives you a great head trip, but it does nothing for actual uh, living. And so we, the Hebrew model is quite different uh, idea than what the Greek philosophers uh, had. And so the question I want to ask this morning is, what difference has biblical understanding made in your life? Do you study the Bible with the Greek model in mind where you just delight in filling your head with facts? And if the, that's the case, he says, who is wise in understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. We've got to be concerned about conduct. Now, just to give you an example of the Greek uh, wisdom, people admired the wisdom of Plato and Aristotle, despite the fact that they were homosexuals and, uh, and pedophiles, but there was a disconnect in the way they thought of wisdom. There was a disconnect between thinking and living. And I've seen many theologians nowadays who have a total disconnect between their theology and their actual living. God gave theology to change us. The doctrine of the Trinity should have practical ramifications in the way we live. Uh, he did not give it just for our intellectual in enjoyment. Did you know that Stalin, uh, the dictator in Russia that murdered how many million people, 30 million or something like that, did you know that Stalin uh, <coughs> was very, very knowledgeable in the scriptures, uh, with a theologian in his early life, uh, planned to go into seminary, and many people thought he was a promising young man for ministry. He had memorized more of the Bible than most of you, perhaps more than all of you, have memorized, and yet it had no impact on his life. We ought not to think that our flesh is going to automatically rebel against biblical knowledge or that Satan's going to be troubled when we're learning uh, uh, biblical knowledge. So long as that knowledge is not affecting and changing you, boy, he's going to get ticked off if it starts producing changes in your life. And so this morning, I want to analyze the difference between mere intellectualism, which many people have achieved, and the life-changing wisdom that he gives. And I should have put some definitions in your outline, and I failed to do that. But let me just quickly review uh, four words that we looked at in chapter 1. Chapter 1, we looked at uh, the words knowledge, understanding, wisdom, and prudence. <clears throat> and knowledge means just acquisition of information. You're opening up your head, you're pouring the data in, data input. And so maybe you're memorizing some scriptures that relate to child-rearing. You've memorized those. You've grown in knowledge. Understanding goes a step beyond that. Understanding is um, where we see the relationship between the facts of scripture, how, what, what the meaning is, and uh, how they are systematically related uh, to each other. Uh, and it's not just in the Bible, it's in the economy. Any field of study, it's seeing how the facts fit together for meaning. And most of you have had times where you've said, ah, now I see what you mean. That's understanding that's uh, coming on uh, as you see how the facts that people have been talking about fit together, whether it's mathematical or in, in, in other situations. And so systematic theology is understanding how the facts of Scripture relate to each other and their meaning in relationship to all the other facts of Scripture. And so when I've uh, talked with pastors in this city who say they're allergic to anything with theology on the end of it, they despise theology. What they are saying is they despise understanding. 
They don't mind knowledge. Yeah, let's read Bible stories. Let's uh, memorize a lot of scripture. That's knowledge. That's great. But what they're really saying when they despise systematic theology is they despise understanding. Okay, the third word is wisdom. And wisdom goes one step beyond that, and it's the ability to apply the knowledge and the understanding that we have gained to the practical, specific issues of life that we are going through. Uh, and let me give you an example, and we'll uh, use what we started with. <clears throat> you, you, you've read a, a book on child rearing, and you've got all kinds of facts that are being thrown at you, statistics on parenting and different scriptures that, uh, oh yeah, there's a scripture I hadn't realized or related to this topic. And so you're growing in understanding through those facts. The book is also systematizing all of those facts, relating them into a way that can give understanding. But then thirdly, if it's a good book anyway, if it's a good book, it's going to take practical situations in life that our parents have difficulty with and it's going to apply that knowledge and it's going to apply that understanding to that situation that's wisdom and that is the area that most parents are pulling their hair out on you know it's like i know a pile of theology be how to deal with this kid you know that's having this temper tantrum i don't know what to do in this situation and so you ask for wisdom in in, in a case like that now the author who wrote the book had a lot of wisdom that he was communicating but you just gained it as understanding, and when you come to a new situation that's not in the book, you say, I don't know. I don't know how to apply it. And so that's what we saw in chapter 1. You go to the Lord for uh, this wisdom. James 3 says it's a wisdom from above. It's supernatural. It cannot be manufactured. Unbelievers, they can memorize the Scripture. They can get systematic theology books. They can spit it out to you. They can teach just as well as a, as a Christian can, but they do not have any revelation from the Lord by way of illumination, and so they cannot apply the Scriptures to the new situations that come up uh, in life. They don't have uh, that wisdom. Now, there's one more word that we went over, and that was prudence, and I won't deal with that very much. Prudence is the willingness to do the wise thing in the tough situations. And there are a lot of people who have a lot of wisdom, biblical wisdom. God's given it to them, and yet they don't do the right thing because their flesh and their desires pull them away. Solomon was that way. He's called the wisest man, uh, you know, on the face of the earth. Hey, man, he did stupid things. What in the world's going on here? Well, he was sinning against wisdom. He knew he shouldn't do them, but he didn't have the prudence to carry him through to do the right thing that he knew to be right in that situation. And so those are the four that we need to have balanced in our lives. Now, with that as a background, let's look at how worldly wisdom manifests itself in uh, James chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. <clears throat> James is not denying that pagans have wisdom. He talks about the wisdom that they have. Not all pagans have wisdom, but they, there is a worldly wisdom where they know how to apply uh, facts and understanding to the specifics of life. But the problem is the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. And, and so there is a wisdom there that many times we admire that God does not. But verse 15 gives four sources of wisdom. The first one is revelational wisdom that comes from God uh, through the Scriptures. This wisdom does not descend from above. The kind that descends from above is, is the first, and we'll look at that in a moment. And then there's three others. He, in the New King James, it's listed as earthly, sensual, 
demonic. Now, let me give you some other translations and paraphrases of that. It belongs to earth, to the unspiritual nature, and to evil spirits. That's Weymouth. Young's literal has earthly, physical, demon-like. Here's Phillips. It comes from this world, from your lower nature, even from the devil. A worldwide English translation. But it comes from this world, it comes from people, it comes from bad spirits. He's talking about sources. Where has this wisdom originated from? Okay, however you translate it, he's talking about the origin, origin of the, not the species, uh, the wisdoms that he's talking about. And um, I've put into your outline there three words that are biblical, it's a biblical phrase that summarizes that, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Another way of saying it is you're getting wisdom from the culture around you, or you're coming up with it yourself, or you're getting it from demons. And that really, logically, there aren't any other alternatives, are there, unless there's space aliens, which there aren't. Uh, if it's not a wisdom that's come down from above, the only other options are you're getting it from the world around you, you're making it up yourself, maybe like Karl Marx and Darwin, and some people have made up all kinds of, well, maybe they got it from demons, who knows. But then the fourth category is the demonic. And if you're honest with yourself, I think you'll have to admit that a lot of the wisdom that we use in daily living cannot be traced to the Bible. It's stuff we just picked up by osmosis, just by living, you know, from our childhood and from watching TV and in other ways like that. And uh, I want to look at these sources, and I believe that there is a logical order here in terms of emphasis and degree of influence. In America, just like in the ancient world, most worldly wisdom just comes from the earthly influences that are all around us, the TV, the radio, the newspaper that we read. And I tell you, we are constantly bombarded with an incredible amount of information, emails and sna snail mail and news groups and discussion forums and all kinds of things. And you are bound to be influenced by that at you know, some point in your life if you are not constantly evaluating it by the Scripture. It, it, sometimes it's tiring to say, is this, you know, to evaluate everything. And then we begin to adopt things that are the wisdom of the world without even thinking about it. Now, it's not just the things that we are taught or that we read. Sometimes it's the things that we are caught as well, that we, uh, we many times catch more than we, uh, you know, just learn from a book, whether it's uh, through voyeurism on the TV or whether it's just watching your neighbor. There's things, we're imitative, right? And we tend to imitate the, the behaviors of, of other people. <clears throat> Jesus described this with the... Demons, you okay? Okay. <laughs> Jesus describes this with the Pharisees, and he describes it as being the traditions of men or the doctrines and the commandments of men. And he says, your life ought not to be regulated by that wisdom. He wanted his disciples to be regulated by the Word, the whole Word, and nothing but the Word. And, and uh, he said that actually this man-made wisdom nullified the Scriptures, nullified it. But anyway, we're, we're not discussing the, 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 the... In fact, actually, look at verse 17. It talks there, seven, if you count, you'll see seven descriptors there, seven pillars of wisdom... And Proverbs, when it analyzes those seven, it makes clear they're all defined by the Bible. 
and in contrast to the wisdom of man. But anyway, that's the traditions of men, and, and, and your, your character, your living, will be impacted by that. Now, the next, next largest amount of wisdom is self-invented. You just wing it, trial and error. You might call this pragmatic uh, 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 wisdom. This is our flesh's contributions, and there are some people who have come up with an enormous amount of wisdom, and they eventually affect the culture, and what they came up with then becomes the next stage of the culture's wisdom, okay? Uh, one of the expressions that you hear a lot about is that you gain wisdom through the school of hard knocks, just trial and error, you know, by, by figuring it out. And there is some degree of truth to that, but really, that survival wisdom many times scores just as low as the world's wisdom does. And the reason for that is because uh, of our flesh. It's self-serving, it justifies our sins, it excuses our behavior in very sophisticated ways. And whereas the world's wisdom <clears throat> makes sense to the culture that you're living in, it may not make sense to another culture, but it makes sense to the culture, this fleshly wisdom makes sense to you at this particular time. It makes sense to you. And the problem is that our sensual nature tends to interpret only what is self-serving as making sense. And you've probably experienced this with your children. You're trying to convince them. You know, biblically, it's just so clear that their behavior is inappropriate and it's, it's wrong from the Scripture. And they're looking puzzled like they just do not understand what you're, what you're saying. I don't understand. You repeat it and they don't understand. And the reason they don't understand is because they are filtering what you are doing through the grid of their sensual nature. And it doesn't, it doesn't compute. And so we need the illumination of the Holy Spirit to get past that. And again, Scripture makes clear God's wisdom is foolishness not just to the world, it is foolishness to our own flesh. And if you think about it, you can see all kinds of examples where that just doesn't make sense to our flesh. Does it really make sense <coughs> to say the first shall be last and the last shall be first? Now, God makes it work. By faith we live it and we see, yes, God's way works. But does it make intuitive sense? I don't think it does. Does it make sense to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you? Um, the world's wisdom and the fleshly wisdom, I think, is quite different from, from God's wisdom. So that's what James means by pragmatic or sensual wisdom. Thirdly, James does not discount the fact that some people are given insight by the demonic. And we saw last week that uh, Simon Peter... Um, had this happened to him, he took the Lord aside with a little tidbit of wisdom. And I just imagine that maybe his ego got stroked a little bit because a few minutes before, he got the biggest praise that Jesus ever gave to any of the disciples. You know, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. It was a tremendous affirmation of faith that Peter gave. So he said, you know, I guess I do have some wisdom. And he takes Jesus aside and says, now, Lord, this is really not a wise thing to do to be going to the cross. Uh, uh, really, you ought not to be talking anymore about crucifixion. And our flesh could have contributed that wisdom, and the world could have contributed that wisdom, but in this case, it was not. Jesus looked straight at him and he said, Satan, get behind me. He recognized what was going on. Satan was using Peter as a tool to try to divert him from his purposes. And so there can be even demonic wisdom where we don't recognize that the demonic has even suggested things in our minds. First Timothy 4 speaks of doctrines of demons that would come into the church, doctrines like celibacy in the Roman Catholic Church and vegetarianism. Let me read the scripture. And the Roman Catholics probably didn't 
realize that demons had suggested this, but uh, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And so in the Christian's life, there are four potential sources of wisdom, and we need to understand those sources. We need to be on guard and recognize how to, uh, how to evaluate them. And depending on your mood and depending on the situation, every one of those four wisdoms can make perfect sense to you. The reason it makes perfect sense is there could be a perfectly logical extraction from that, but if your presuppositions are wrong, and each one of those starts with different presuppositions, if your presuppositions are wrong, but you're building on top of it, yeah, it makes sense, and people have done that. They read you know, a psychology book that's going down humanism, but because they've already adopted some of the earlier presuppositions, yeah, that makes sense, that makes sense, and they're led down the, the path into error. <clears throat> So, question is, if it's uh, so confusing and there's, uh, it's so easy for us to get sucked in by other wisdoms, how do we tell what is biblical wisdom and what is not? And James says, just take the WQ test. Two basic questions. First question is, um, does this line up with the Bible? And since we've already dealt with the sufficiency of Scripture earlier on in, in James, I'm not going to uh, continue on with that. The second question is, how do I do these character tests? Or how does the other person who is uh, handing out this wisdom, how does he do on these character tests? Because there is always going to be a, a, a kind of flavor or character that each of these four wisdoms is going to have. And so what you could do is deduct a point for every characteristic in verses 14 through 16 that you find in your life and add a point. In fact, I, if I'd had time, I would have written up a little test for you. But add a point for every test in verses 17 through 18 that is present. By their fruits, uh, they can be judged. And so let's look at some of the things that motivate the wisdom from below. Verse 14, but if you have bitter envy... Now, he mentions envy all by itself in verse 16, but here he mentions bitter envy because bitterness and envy frequently go hand in hand. Uh, a wisdom that wants the credit and hopes other people won't get the credit and gets really frustrated when they do and you don't get the credit. That is not a wisdom from God. Uh, a wisdom that longs for the respect of other people, there is the envy side, and is hurt when other people get it and you don't, there is the bitterness side, is not from God. True wisdom recognizes we are nothing and we deserve nothing. We couldn't have come up with that stuff on our own. In fact, we were so desperate, we were saying, Lord, I can't figure this out. Please give me wisdom. He gives it, and for you to take the credit would seem so foolish. And so there is such a recognition of a person who is constantly walking in wisdom, recognizing God has to give it, that he is nothing, that you can tell by the character of pride and, and envy and some of these other things, whether it is a true wisdom from God or not. Many times people put heavy-duty copyright um, notices on materials that they say they got from God, God's wisdom. And the question is, well, who, who owns this? Is this God's or is this yours? Now, I don't have a problem with copyrights. I put copyrights on stuff, too so that I can preserve the right to freely distribute this material that the Lord wants. He gives wisdom so that we will distribute it, right? Larry Burkett, um, he didn't copyright a book. Somebody else stole it from him, and he was never able to publish it 
or distribute it. This other person had it. And so there's a good use for that. But I think we need to evaluate uh, what our attitudes are. Is there envy? There should not be envy or bitterness. In verses 14 and 16, he nails self-seeking of every sort. How is our wisdom used? Is it only for our benefit, for our self-aggrandizement? Every apostle really blasts people who used wisdom in order to enrich themselves, used wisdom only if somebody, well, what's in it for me if I'm going to share this with you? You know, that kind of an attitude really blasted them on that. Are we generous with our wisdom or are we self-seeking? Let let me give you an example of how uh, this can work out. Um, Jeremiah had been hurt a number of times when he had shared the wisdom of God with the people and he told himself, he made a vow, I'm just going to close my mouth, I'm not going to speak God's word to these people anymore. And so he tries to hold it in and he can't. He says it was like a fire that was burning within his bones and he had to speak. Okay, that's what these fruits are. Anytime God gives something and it's a genuine wisdom that comes from him, it is going to have a fruit. In this case, it's going to be something that you're going to be motivated to serve others with. And so, again, if it's selfish, it's probably not from God. Pride. Do not boast, he says. And yet that's all that some forms of wisdom in the church seem to do. Knowledge puffs up, Paul says. But that's not true of wisdom. Wisdom really humbles because you recognize every time God gives it, and he has to give it afresh moment by moment, it humbles you into the dust of recognizing you are totally dependent upon God. So another way of saying it is IQ puffs up. WQ humbles. It is quite different, quite different. Do not boast and lie against the truth. Now, why would a person want to claim to be wise who wants to teach and lie against the truth? That's because the truth hurts. It's not popular many times. And if a person has a motivation that he wants the accolades of people, he's going to tend to streamline his teaching to tickle their ears rather than bringing the faithful wounds of a friend. It's going to be really uh, hard for him to do that. And you'd be amazed at the number of times I've had pastors tell me that they would not touch certain passages or certain topics with a 10-foot pole because they would lose members over it, suppressing the truth. In verse 16, James says that the eventual result of such wisdom is confusion and evil triumphing. Is there a lot of evil that's triumphed in the Church of Jesus Christ in North America? Is there a lot of confusion that has triumphed? Absolutely, yes. He says, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Now, you don't have to look too far to be able to see people on both sides of the spectrum of this equation of wisdom, but I don't want you to be thinking about other people. I want you guys to be asking yourselves, what kind of wisdom do I have? Am I demonstrating the evil characteristics or the godly fruits of of wisdom? Well, let's look at God-given wisdom. Verse 17 says, but the wisdom that is from above. So it's first of all revelational. It's the revelation of of Holy Scripture. This is the objective revelation. But in order to understand this and apply it, we've got to have a subjective revelation, which Reformed people speak of as illumination. You've got to have both or we're not going to have uh, wisdom. Now, Proverbs says we do have a part as well. We've got to dig in the Scripture as if we were mining for gold, the Scripture says. We've got to be diligent if we're ever to grow in wisdom. But then it goes on to say, only God can give the wisdom. Now, it's not a contradiction. Over and over, you'll find that. Human responsibility side by side with divine uh, um, sovereignty. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. I mean, both really are needed. So we need to, we need to dig for it. But uh, ultimately, it comes from God. And so James 1 says, ask. If any man lacks wisdom, ask of God, and it'll be given to him freely without reproach. But let him ask in faith. And uh, people who, uh, who are walking in the Spirit see this happen all the time. I don't know how many times we've had to ask for wisdom. And what five minutes before you're pulling your hair out and thinking, there's no way I know the answer to this, God gives it as you're walking into the situation. He gives the wisdom on the spot as it is needed. And uh, so it's by sovereign dispensation. You pray for it. You claim it. It cannot be manufactured. It's received from God. Now, the second characteristic of this wisdom is that it's used under authority to God. Verse 13 speaks of the meekness of wisdom. And the word meek had a couple of nuances. One of them, let me give you the dictionary definition, not being overly impressed by a sense of one's own self-importance. Well, if, you've, if you're over and over realizing how much you need God's wisdom, you're not going to be impressed with your own self-importance, are, are you? And then the other was tamed, being tamed. Uh, this word was used to translate uh, wild beasts who had been tamed, like a wild stallion. If he was tamed, this word for meek would be given to him, even though he's an incredibly powerful stallion, could kill you if he wanted to. He didn't run off in his own directions. He harnessed all of his strength to serve the master. And then there's a third nuance, and that's dependence. And so a person with this kind of, of wisdom, he's not interested in novelty. or uh, He sticks to the, the tried and the true of what God has given. He recognizes the source, does not have an overly inflated uh, view of him, himself. And then true biblical wisdom is developed in the context of service and relationship to others. You will never get real wisdom in the abstract apart from living living out life. A lot of people ask for wisdom before they need the wisdom. God typically gives it in the context of where that wisdom is going to be needed. And once it's given, by the way, you better start using that wisdom or he's not going to give you any more. Uh, you're either going forward or you're going, you're, you're going backward. And so we need to ask ourselves, do we learn doctrines so that we can avoid embarrassment or do we learn doctrine to please the Lord? Do we learn doctrine to beat a person in an argument or to win a person? Uh, do we use the truth to beat people over the head? Uh, we, we've got to ask, what's the character of the kind of wisdom that I have? Now, the main tests of wisdom are seen in verse 17. There are seven characteristics, and as I mentioned, some scholars believe these are the seven pillars of wisdom in Proverbs 9.1. Proverbs 9.1 says, Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. Now, if those seven pillars are not in place, the whole house of wisdom is going to crumble to the ground. And the first characteristic is purity. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure. And again, the order is very important. If you put willing to yield before purity, you're never going to have purity because you're going to be yielding to the wrong thing, right? And so we've got to have the order. The wisdom that God gives is something that motivates us to be pure and motivates us to promote purity in the world because if we're seeing life as God sees it, which is one of the definitions of wisdom, it's going to grieve us to see that things are not pure out there. It's going to be something that promotes uh, purity. And uh, so anytime you see a, a wisdom that's careless about purity in their own life uh, or righteousness in the world, Again, question it. The second characteristic is peaceableness. Some people are always looking for a fight with theology. Now, sometimes a fight comes to us, and we cannot avoid it. 
But Paul says, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Not just with perfect men. <laughs> with all men that were to live peaceably. Uh, we shouldn't be delighting in fights, and yet some people are just incredibly pugnacious when it comes to uh, <clears throat> theological debate. They're all, always poking holes, always trying to find out what's wrong uh, with this person or what's wrong uh, with that person. And that's not to say that there is uh, uh, this kind of wisdom is going to tolerate heresy. Jesus didn't, and we should not tolerate heresy either, but neither should we just delight in being on witch hunts. You know, some ministries, that's their specialty. That's all they do. They don't build people up. All they do is to tear people down and say what's wrong with everybody. And I, I, I don't see that as a wisdom that comes from God. Even Jeremiah, uh, the prophet, uh, he, he was supposed to tear down, but it grieved him. He wept as he tore down. He was also commanded to build up. Both sides need to be present. One person said there are two kinds of cleverness. One consists of thinking bright remarks in time to say them. The other consists of thinking of bright remarks in time not to say them. And that's the latter that we need to have, okay? Or you're thinking in time, oh, that was a great remark, but I better not say it because it's not going to promote this person's welfare. All it's going to do is stroke my own ego. Okay. <clears throat> the third word's a little harder to nail down. It can have the meaning of gentleness, but also includes the ideas of being considerate, forbearing, uh, not easily provoked. Well, again, based on this, you can, you can find people that's like, why are they so easily provoked? Why are they so hostile? Why are they so abrasive? Why do they, are not, they not forbearing? And we need to question such wisdom. Now, it's possible, obviously, uh, just to miss one or two, ju just use this analogy. If you thought of those seven pillars as seven legs that wisdom is walking along on, you know, if one or two of those legs is amputated, you might say, okay, it's still wisdom from God. But if they're all missing, they're all amputated, James has said, get out of here. That's not real wisdom. It's dead. It's not even crawling, okay? Your faith is dead. Your words are dead. Your wisdom is dead. That's what he's trying to communicate. If all of these evidences that God's Spirit accompanies wisdom with are absent, you need to question. It's probably a theological wisdom that simply comes from your own flesh. Okay, let's see here. Peaceableness. <clears throat> gentleness. Paul told the Thessalonians, but we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. He told Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, but avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. And we need to evaluate our lives. And uh, we can evaluate other ministries uh, through this as well. Are we harsh? Are we unreasonable when we talk to other people? Or are we gentle? Are we patient with them? <clears throat> and by the way, you know, if we're looking at life as God does, and we realize we're constantly receiving wisdom from the Lord, it, it'll give us a confidence. We can just present the truth in His good timing. He will open their eyes to it as well. We don't have to shove it down there. We don't have to be harsh. We don't have to shove it down their, their throats. And so there's got to be a balance between um, being a wimpy butterhead that has absolutely no back, backbone and being a head butter that Larry Nolte calls a rockhead, right? Uh, there's a two extremes, not a butterhead, not a head butter. Either one is wrong. Now, the fourth pillar of wisdom is a reasonableness and a willingness to listen and if need be to yield and to admit wrong. James says willing to yield. 
And again, that exposes so much wisdom as not being a, a, a God-given wisdom. Here are two di dictionary definitions of this uh, word. Open to reason, willing to be persuaded. Another dictionary says, pertaining to being easily persuaded with the implication of being open to reason or willing to listen. One who is easily persuaded or open to reason. So not a rocket, okay? Somebody that's willing to, to think through the arguments that another person has. And many times we keep arguing and arguing, even though we don't have a leg to stand on, it's just a pride issue. It's a pride issue. The old saying says, a wise man changes his mind, a fool never. I doubt very much that any of you have uh, a life that's never been wrong. But when we're in debate with an adversary, if we're never willing to admit we're wrong, or if we're never willing to admit, well, I don't know, then we need to question whether we have this, this characteristic or not. If you can't bring yourself to admit that you don't know, it may be either you don't have enough facts and you, you're too proud to admit it, or you don't have real biblical wisdom. Fifthly, he'll be full of mercy. Why? Well, he shows mercy to people who are theologically messed up because he's been messed up theologically before until the Lord opened his eyes and understanding. He'll, be, uh, he'll have mercy on people who don't have their parenting all put together because he recognizes unless the Lord opens their eyes, you know, there but for the grace of God would I go. He's going to have that merciful characteristic because day by day he recognizes he needs it. He needs it. He cannot function without God's uh, mercy. Now, full of mercy and good fruits. That's one characteristic there. In other words, wherever the Spirit is present giving wisdom, the Spirit himself is going to be communicating the fruits of the Spirit. You can't separate one from the other. He communicates them together. Next characteristic of wisdom is without partiality. And that's a very interesting word. If you look it up in the Greek dictionary, it just gives a simple definition. It says, undecided. Undecided. But it refers to a prejudicial judgment. The opposite does. A prejudicial judgment. In James 2, verse 1, it uses that uh, in, the, in the opposite uh, way but a prejudicial judgment of somebody before you know the facts. Whereas he said, what you really need to do is be undecided until you've heard the facts. You've all seen this. There's some rockheads out there who say, you know, don't confuse me with the facts. Dictionary said, pertaining to being genuine and sincere and hence lacking in pretense or show. Genuine, sincere. And so don't pretend to know what you don't know and don't pretend to be uh, what you are not. Uh, perhaps you've argued yourself into a corner, but because of pride, you just don't want to lose this argument. You've run out of arguments, and so you're starting to make guesses and making those as absolute pronouncements, and you won't admit that you don't know. Why? It's probably pride and the self that's uh, uh, feeding this wisdom. It's something you've generated yourself, and you've got to defend, because uh, God is not going to defend your, your own wisdom. Uh, whereas a person with true wisdom, he, he's not insecure by the fact that he doesn't know. He says, I don't know. The Lord's opened that to me, other things to me in the past. I'll ask him on this and I'll do some study and I'll try to get back to you. He's not insecure at all about that. Uh, let me give you an illustration. Back in the days of Mark Twain, there was a, a young man that was being interviewed to drive a steamboat on the Mississippi River. But because of his age, 
the interviewer was really going through pretty tough uh, questions on him. And he asked this person at one point, do you know where every rock in the Mississippi is? And this guy says, no, sir, I do not know where every rock in the Mississippi is, but I know where they aren't. And he got the job. <laughs> I know where they aren't. Uh, and that's the difference between WQ and, and IQ, okay? You can have high wisdom quotient. You can be very mature in your wisdom and have vast amounts of information that you don't know. Can you see that? Uh, you don't need to have a high IQ. You don't need to have one of those memories, you know, that can win these trivial pursuit games in order to have high uh, wisdom quotient uh, in your life. And so we need to ask ourselves, does the wisdom I display line up with the wisdom from above that James talks about here? And if it does not, we need to immediately begin asking and every day ask for wisdom for the things that we are going through, even the things you think you know, because you may be applying it from not a biblical, but from a, a, a self-made wisdom. Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So we ask, how do you grow in wisdom? Well, uh, you grow in wisdom by uh, developing uh, the, the kind of service that wisdom promotes. He says, now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, often the NIV <clears throat> interprets rather than translates, but in this case, I like their interpretation and the literal rendering really is a little tough to follow. So let me give you the NIV interpretation. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. He is saying if you are a person whom God has made to be wise, there is going to be a peacemaker quality about you. You're going to be sowing peace and you're going to be raising a harvest of righteousness in the lives of other people. So again, how do we grow in righteousness, in, in, in wisdom? It's by immediately implementing the things that God has told us about and sharing that wisdom with other people. Uh, it's uh, always in the context of real living that God causes us to grow. And so rather than waiting till a tingling feeling goes down your back, ask in faith, go forth in obedience uh, to the word, and it's in the context of the doing it that God will open up your understanding. And um, we just need to make sure we have a wisdom that is lived out, and may he receive all the glory from that. Amen. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the wisdom that you have promised, that you do not even rebuke us when we keep asking you for wisdom. Father, we want to walk in, in, in your wisdom, thinking your thoughts after you. And I pray that we would saturate ourselves in the Scripture, your objective revelation, but you would also open the eyes of our understanding and help each one here to be a people who walks in wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.